0: Let me make a little suggestion in your syllabus, please. Uh, There was very little reading assigned uh, for these days in in Dr. Cook's notes and in Dr. Ellison. So if you will pick up on the reading and uh, be ready tomorrow for what we have under the believer's judgment. Now, to go back to the mind renewer of prophecy, particularly as it relates to the mystery of our translation, the new body that we shall receive, eternal in the heavens, the rewards that shall be ours at that time, the translation that shall take place, all of these things spoken to be mysteries in the Scripture. And obviously, we are anxious to determine the timing of that. As best we can from the revelation of the Word of God. In the organization of the material on page 286, Dr. Cook begins with the title, Theological Differences Regarding the Time of the Rapture. In approaching the arguments for the post-tribulational position yesterday, I skipped over this and uh, really did not list it among the uh, Views of the time of the translation because it, uh, it tends to bridge between several views. The partial rapture view on page 286 bridges between several views and you might say that the, what we call here the mid-tribulation uh, rapture view uh, bridges in a sense between these two, the uh, post-trib and the pre-trib, It uh, tries to take elements of both and formulate another viewpoint. So it may be good for me not to skip over what you have on page 286, but uh, to just bring some brief notes to your attention there. Uh, The partial rapture position, no names are given in your notes for supporters of that. So let me give you a few robert govett g-o-v-v pardon me g-o-v-e-t-t robert govett a uh, biblical student of the late 19th century uh, in the middle of uh, the 19th century espoused this view it was more popularly done by george h lang (coughs) l-a-n-g And uh, in more recent days, in the uh, book called The Rapture, uh, Pre-, Mid-, or Post-Tribulation done by three of the professors at Trinity Seminary, the mid-position is taken by uh, Dr. Gleason Archer. It would be of interest to you to note that it is not called the mid-tribulation position by him, but is referred to as the case for the mid-70th week rapture position. And I think that is a clearer statement of the position rather than mid-trib. So those are names that would be connected with it. Let me uh, uh, stretch, pardon me. You're talking about partial and then you're talking about mid. I thought the- I said that these are, excuse me. Thank you for clarification. Between the post-trib view and the pre-trib view are views that are kind of mediating views. The partial rapture position is a mediating view. The mid-tribulational position is a mediating view. And I gave you names for both of those. Yes. Those two are partial. but The The first two are partial. partial. The last would be mid with a contemporary writer, Gleason Archer. Thank you. I slipped a gear there. Uh, in That expression. Thank you Now go back then to the first of these mediating views between these other two namely the partial rapture view Because it may be that enough is not said here as to why these people hold to it Um, Just looking at what is here. You may not think it is very attractive Uh, Basically uh, the view sees the translation as a reward for faithfulness and they would look at those passages that talk about uh, be faithful uh, be ready uh, be watching be filled with the Spirit Uh, passages that would uh, have that kind of an emphasis uh, for those who uh, would be translated into Christ's presence Uh, They would believe that the exhortations to watch, to be faithful, all suggest that translation is a reward for faithful service. Uh, Obviously, another part of this position, then, is that not all will be raptured at the same time. Uh, So the view really is a pre-trib, post-trib view, uh, in a sense. Uh, Those who are ready will escape the tribulation. Those who are not will not escape it. Escape, then, is a reward for faithful service. Uh, When you look over to 287, and you see the reasons for the rejection of the theory, I would put more weight on B than A under number 3, the rejections. Under A, it says participation in the rapture is viewed as reward for good works rather than as an integral part of the gracious and comprehensive saving work of God in Christ. The believer's reward is related to the judgment seat of Christ which follows the rapture. Uh, That is an explanation. Oftentimes that is used to put down the view as uh, depreciating the grace of God. And... uh, Uh, John Walvoord, in his work in answering the partial rapture, uh, would state that this uh, view militates against God's grace, that the rapture is a product of of God's grace. It is not a product of our works. Uh, So uh, that is an argument that is used against it. However, I think in all fairness, the people who hold to this view would be people who believe strongly in the grace of God. They are not people who say that uh, uh, our salvation, our justification is anything other than by God's grace. But they would say that our uh, position by way of glorification is by reward, and that does not militate against grace. And likewise, they would add the translation into that. The translation is a matter of reward. Uh, That should not be confused with their view of justification. They would not uh, in any way say that we are uh, not saved by grace through faith, apart from the works of the law. Yes, Tim. If get it straight, then these people would say that there's a level of spiritual maturity where we would be considered ready for the kingdom And those that haven't reached that level will be left until they get to that level correct that would be one way of stating it another way of saying be filled with the Spirit be ready be watching be faithful etc and uh, translation is a result of uh, being ready yeah now I don't think one should Uh, try to answer the position on the basis of a discussion of grace versus works. Uh, I don't really think that that is the main issue. The issue is whether translation is the result of reward according to the passages that they are expounding. And uh, I think that B, therefore, is an a very important statement. Scripture teaches that all believers will be raptured at the same time. That is, in specific passages that talk about the translation, that talk about the rapture, where that's the subject matter, they don't say, uh, some of us which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall be caught up, or some of us will be translated. It's we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the passages that speak specifically about the rapture where that is their subject matter they do not make a distinction between uh some who are ready and some who are not ready Uh, it is universal at that point among believers and to take a passage where the subject matter is not the rapture or the translation and to draw a conclusion from that, which conclusion does not come out of the passages that deal with the rapture, I think is, uh, is weak exegesis. And then there are other passages that they go to, such as Luke 21, 36, and Matthew 24, 40 to 42, <coughs> where I think wrong inferences are drawn from the context. One of the advantages of the view, by the way, It does respond to the scriptural teaching of imminency. And it does respond to the problem of tribulation. And those who were in the early church, you remember, had a real problem dealing with imminency and tribulation. So they believed in imminency uh, among the early church fathers. And they believed that they were going to be in great tribulation. Uh, So both of those were there. Well, this view would solve that problem. Uh, those would be in great tribulation who were not ready uh, for the translation. And at the same time, it would do service to the doctrine of imminency that is universal throughout the, the epistles of the New Testament. So it has uh, that mediating advantage. Now look at Luke 21:36 for just a moment so that we don't bypass that. The passage that is related at the bottom of 286, Luke 21, 36. Uh, In the preceding verses, you've had the parable of the fig tree and uh, the statement that the kingdom of God is near. And then verse 32, Truly I say to you, (coughs) this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Uh, You have reference in your notes there to ah, genea, meaning race. If you look it up in in your lexical tools, mean race, tribe, custom, people, nation. Uh, It is not preeminently a time word. It is uh, a word of uh, a people that relates to a time. So when you put it in its context, context, it will have a time relationship. And I take it the generation is this people, this generation, this people, these Jews, this people of mine will not pass away until all these things take place. Uh, Kind of a statement that you will not exterminate this people. The things that I've said will come up. Come to pass for them will indeed come to pass verse 33 heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away then 34 be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and that that day come on you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth but keep on the alert at all times praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the son of man obviously this is a strong statement of of spirituality a particular level of alertness and sobriety and readiness in one's life and certainly you would see that but you have to ask yourself about the timing of it in verse 36 uh, before the coming of the son of man by the way if you'll trace through son of man in its usage in the New Testament, it is always the term that is used with regard to the earthly relationships of Christ. Uh, And uh, we we don't, for example, talk about uh, the church waiting for the Son of Man to come and receive her. Uh, The church waits for her Lord to come and receive her. Uh, So when it's talking about rapture, translation, it talks about the Lord. When it's talking about the events of earth, it talks about the Son of Man and here we have the consummation of what's going to take place on this earth Uh, it is not in the passage talking at all about rapture now that to me is what is a greater problem with the viewpoint it uh, exegetes uh, rightly the idea of alertness and readiness uh, for the coming of the son of man but it wrongly Uh, applies it to the second advent or the coming of the Son of Man to the earth rather than the passages which are talking about the coming of the Lord for his church Uh, there is no relationship at all in the passage there is no vocabulary at all that would speak about uh, the Lord and his church and his relationship to them now the same thing is true in the next passage Matthew 24 40 to 42 Uh, This one becomes especially clear if you look at it in conjunction with Luke 17. Inasmuch as this will come up again in a few pages later, let me just deal with it now and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 to 42. And you might also pull out this paper, if you have it with you, that I handed out to you, Outline of Presentation, of uh, the debate in Long Beach concerning the timing of the rapture. On page 4 of that article on Roman numeral 5 it says Dr. Gundry believes that quote the one shall be taken end quote is a reference to the rapture in a post-tribulational context and many people have sought to uh, relate this passage to the rapture. Here is a good example of grabbing a passage where the terminology fits what you're talking about and want to preach on without ever looking at the context of the passage. For what we have in Matthew 24, uh, 37 and following, has often been used by those who hold to a pre-tribulational rapture to express what will happen. Uh, Some will be taken, they would say, in rapture, and some will be left behind for uh, judgment. And that seemed to be a beautiful picture of the rapture. But if indeed it is a picture of the rapture, then the timing is post-tribulational in the passage. Uh, look at uh, the sweep of things in Matthew 24. Remember that we suggested in the first 15 or 14 verses you have uh, characterizing statements rather than categorizing statements. The writer is not seeking to give a timeline as such (coughs) in the first 14 verses. He takes you through characteristics of the age with an escalation of them up to the last uh, day, up to the coming of the Son of Man, up to the end that they have asked about. Then in verse 15, uh, the writer gives you a specific timeline. He gives you events that will fit within the preceding uh, sweep of the character of this age so verse 15 therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place that's very specific and it's uh, uh, related to Daniel 9 and Daniel's prophecy so there can be no mistaking what he's talking about here um, when you see that then he moves through the argument from that once he gets through with that in verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. So another timeline. You, you have the beginning of the great tribulation uh, spoken of there in verse 15. He takes you through the thinking with regard to that. Then in 29, immediately after, another chronological statement. And uh, the gathering of the elect, the signs in heaven, the coming of the Son of Man... Uh, takes you right down to the end of the age that they've asked about. Now, in verse 32, you have uh, a series of parables here. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. And we've already related to that from Luke 21. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not. Uh, this generation will not be destroyed. This generation will not pass away. What I've said to this people... Uh, to my servant Daniel, will most certainly come true to this people. The things that belong to their peace will indeed happen, but they will happen at the right time. Then he has another illustration, another parable. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What shall this be? The coming of the Lord for his church? No, the coming of the Son of Man at this particular time, at the end of the age, together with all the other destructive forces. Now, what will it be like? There will be two men in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other will will be left therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your lord is coming now you'll notice that in the notes that i've handed out to you uh, on this debate um, he defines this basically through the use of the word taken which he says denotes and i'm quoting denotes accompaniment and association following the action of taking He believes this, quote, admirably suits the rapture, but clashes with the sudden stroke of judgment at Armageddon, where a terrible eternal separation follows, end quote. Uh, My answer in respect to that is, number one, keep your finger in Matthew 24 and turn to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 17, which is even more explicit than the one in Matthew 24, I've noted a more detailed study of this can be seen in the parallel passage in Luke 17, 26 to 37, where it becomes very clear that the first portion of the passage deals with escape from destruction, whereas the second part deals with being taken in destruction. How can I say that? Well, when you come to the end of the Matthew passage, it simply says one will be taken, the other will be left. And you're left with the question, taken where? Where? And so Gundry would say, taken in rapture. Beautiful picture of rapture. But when you turn to Luke 17, it finishes out the answer to the question. Verse 36, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. Verse 37, and answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there will the vultures be gathered together. That is hardly a picture of translation. It is hardly a picture of rapture. But mind you, both sides have equally taken it out of context. They've ripped it right out of the chronological structure that you have in the passage. Um, Now, uh, Dr. Gundry seeks to say that the word taken means a, a friendly kind of thing. Notice point two, the word taken need not mean a friendly or joyous taking, even as Dr. Gundry himself admits in the case of John 19.16, where the Roman soldiers, quote, took Jesus and led him away, end quote. That hardly is a friendly and joyous taking. Uh, So how do I know what the Paralambano is referring to in the passage? I only know it by the context. I do not find that out by looking up my lexicon and finding if I can find a use of parolambano that's friendly and joyous and therefore this must be referring to the rapture. I've got to look at the context of the passage. And the context in this passage is so clear that it seems difficult to miss it. Uh, But you are helped by putting Luke together with Matthew at this point because Luke follows up with the question, where, Lord, and he gives the answer to that. So I think the major problem uh, with this particular use of Luke 21 and Matthew 24 uh, in the partial rapture view is the same as the problem with it in the post-tribulational view, that uh, certainly there is an exhortation to imminency. There's, there is a, pardon me, there's an exhortation to being ready, to uh, being alert, and it certainly would teach an imminency of this thing happening. Uh, but it is in a context that is not talking about rapture at all. Question. Uh, I'm wondering how, would you happen to know how they would explain 1 Corinthians 15 where in verse 51 where Paul's talking about the rapture there obviously and he's referring to it as a mystery, something that hasn't been revealed before. And obviously the passages we're looking at in Matthew and Luke were written before Paul wrote. And so I guess I'm wondering, how would they deal with that when Paul saying it's a mystery it hasn't been revealed before? I could not tell you. I, I did point at this point, I don't recall any attempt to put those two together. And I think your observation is a, is a keen one. Yes? In Matthew 24, verse 42, then, who's the exhortation to? The exhortation would be with respect to that, gene- uh, that generation that sees the setting up of the abomination of desolation in the temple, which will take place at the middle of the 70th week, which will catapult the great tribulation, which will end with the coming of the Son of Man, who will terminate that battle, lest there would be a genocide. Without the coming of the Son of Man at that point, there would be a genocide. And God will see to it that his word to... That people, that nation, Israel, will be fulfilled. Why? Because of their faithfulness? No, not at all. Because of his faithfulness. Yes? So then, does that exhortation in 42 and 44 not apply to the disciples as Jesus was speaking to them? I take it that you are not using apply in uh, the technical sense of application, but you're using it in the sense of interpretation. uh, the, The exhortation applies to everybody. It applies to me. It applies to everybody. But to whom is it interpreted? What is the primary interpretation? The primary interpretation of the passage would be with regard to that people uh, in that day. Now, application, oh yes, it has application to me. When I turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, for example, uh, the Lord is exhorting me on the basis of the destruction that shall take place at the day of the Lord. I won't be there at that time but he exhorts me on the basis of it you see so there's to to say that somebody is exhorted on the basis of what is going to happen does not mean that they will be there there are many people that are exhorted on the basis of the second coming of Jesus Christ that have already died but they were legitimately exhorted on the basis of that so my the the point is not what is the application of the passage Uh, what is the specific interpretation of the passage, then what would be the application to them, and what would be the application to us today? Yes, Tim? Would you then explain what the verse dealing with the fig tree has to do with that? Some hold that the fig tree is representational of the nation of Israel. Okay, let's cut across the grain of all of that. And simply say that the point that he makes in the parable, whatever the differences of the budding and all of that may be, the point that he is making is I have said something, and my word will be fulfilled. What I have said to this people, Israel, will be fulfilled with respect to them. And the point in the passage is you won't think that is true. And they may not have thought that in 70 AD, by the way, either. Uh, but God said, I've got, a, uh, I've got a purpose for Israel, and I will fulfill it. Uh, so, wherever we may get lost with regard to the leaves and the buds and everything else, get the main thing. This geneah will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. It is, it is his word that has stated it. So, it basically is talking about God's covenant relationship with the nation of Israel and what he said he would do. You've got to take this thing in conjunction with a whole covenant structure. And a couple of hours ago, one of the questions that came someplace from over here is, how do you relate uh, Revelation 20 to the covenant structure? And the relationship was made back to the covenant of grace, which is never mentioned in the scripture. Uh, the, The relationship is back to the covenant with Abraham. It's, it's, uh, it's a puzzling thing to see theological covenants which are never mentioned in Scripture to supplant the biblical covenants which are so carefully stated, which have specific promises. That's the problem uh, when theology becomes the bottom line rather than exegesis. Okay, yes. Um, on the interpretation of Luke... 1736 and 37 is that just referring to people being killed at the end of the tribulation and then the Lord will come before everybody's wiped out is that the way you're coming at that yes you've already had that clue preceding that that it takes you right down to the end there will not be a genocide the Son of Man will come and he will curtail it and then he gives you what will happen after that but you have that in Matthew 25 rather than in the Luke passage okay uh, there's so much to say there and I I hate to just push you through but I think I better Uh, now the post-trib position I suggested last time as clearly as I could state the arguments for it now let me uh, go to 289 and respond to each one of those just making a comment or two on each of the things that are said some of this I recognize uh, is redundant. You hear it again and again. Uh, and I am sorry about that, but I don't know of any other way to handle it. You've, you've, got, to, you've got to see what the primary thrust is. Uh, under number three, response to these arguments, dealing first with imminency. I said to you last time that if I were to pick one passage, just one passage that... Uh, for exegeting a pre-tribulational viewpoint, I would, I would pick Revelation 3.10. Uh, very close second to that would be 1 Thessalonians 5.9 and other such passages that talk about the fact that we are not destined for wrath. Uh, but if I were to pick a theological argument, I would pick imminency. And if you've noticed the writings that I've given you, this is where people stumble. Because they go through the Scripture and they cannot deny the doctrine of imminency any moment return. This is one of the problems with the partial rapture because they see imminency, but they see tribulation. Uh, the post-tribulational viewpoint sees, uh, the, sees imminency in the case of Barton Payne, sees tribulation. Ray Summers, millennialist, sees imminency, but sees signs preceding, preceding it. Now, you just can't do that. Uh... Theologically, I would, I would uh, urge to consistency. If you're, if you're going to go for something other than a pre-tribulational viewpoint, uh, then you cannot use the term imminency. Uh, there are schools, for example, that have the, the statement of imminency in their doctrinal statement that have post-tribulationalist t- teaching on the faculty. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I have much more respect at that point for George Ladd when he denies imminency and chooses a term impending, meaning preceded by specific signs. At least that's logical. It isn't exegetical in my mind, but it's logical. Why isn't it exegetical? Because everybody that's really reckoning with this problem sees this matter of imminency throughout the text. So imminency is a key thing that's got to be dealt with and this is not a fundamentalist uh, viewpoint. Uh, You can pick the most liberal uh, commentaries on the New Testament. uh, I shouldn't uh, make Barrett the most liberal, but he's not the most conservative. Uh, He has no axe to grind at this point, in other words. And take Barrett's commentary on John and see what he says about imminency. He says you cannot get away from the fact that that the uh, apostles, the People of the New Testament believed that the Lord could come in any moment. There was an any-moment expectation. And I think that's why you see this confusing statement in people like Summers and Alice and others in the notes that I've handed out to you. The evident attitude of the New Testament church was expectancy. Jesus may come today. And uh, uh, we need to have that same expectancy. I, uh, I will resist the sermon that I feel coming on because I want to get these, these. Uh, I want to get through these points here. But, but, uh, uh, grab hold of that. Don't let such a teaching become pedantic. It wasn't for them. And the very solid fact is that before I ever finish this class, Jesus Christ could break into our midst and rapture us out. Uh, There are no prophesied signs that have to take place before the coming of the Lord for his church. Now, that's, that's one thing I think really has to be handled. Then I think the second one, tribulation for the church, that throws you into the issue of what is the tribulation we're talking about? Get that clear in your mind. We ought to be beyond the, the discussion of, uh, of, well, we all go through tribulation. Uh, Christ promised us tribulation. We all know that. Anybody that's read the scripture knows that. And that certainly is not the issue. Uh, nor is the issue one of, uh, what's the matter? Are you afraid of the tribulation? you afraid Christ can't take care of you? Are you chicken-hearted or something? Is that what your problem is? I mean, some of the things that come up are really bordering on being ludicrous. We're not talking about uh, what God could do. We're not talking about what I'm afraid to go through. We're talking about what is the nature of the tribulation. What is the time of Jacob's trouble? What is the period such as never has been before, known nor ever will be. You can't come along and take that statement, and at the same time say, "Well, we're promised tribulation, and this is what it is." Well then how could that fit? A time such as never has been before, known or ever will be. This is unique. This is not like other tribulation. And it's unique, not simply in its intensity. It is unique in the personages that are involved and in its purpose. And we need to see what it is for. Don't generalize the terms. Look and see what it's for. Um, Now, one side or the other does not have the corner on mistakes at this point. Uh, We all need help to be consistent. Um, So look at what the nature of the tribulation really is. What is it for according to Scripture, this tribulation? And the third thing is a, a strong... Uh, importance, the distinctive of Israel as over against the church. I am not one who is opting for a complete discontinuity within the people of God. I think that has been done too often. Uh, to see Israel and the church as two entities forever separated on into eternity, I think that is a problem. I don't see that when I look at the uh, olive tree, for example, in Romans. I see one people of God. I have no problem with the, uh, even the continuing covenanted community, to use an omil phrase, that, that doesn't really bother me that much. But don't be so bent on uniformity that you can't see the multiformity within the unity. Uh, make your mind go back to the pages I gave you from Gerhardus Voss in his biblical theology, the introductory pages. Uh, and the multiformity within the unity. Uh, God says something to Israel, and God says something to the church, and they are two quite distinct things. And you start fuzzing those one into the other, and then you will have to be general in everything you say about prophecy. The reason why many of the people are so general in what they say is because they have blurred the distinctions and they no longer can be specific. Uh, we'll see that when we come to deal with the matter of a quote general judgment uh, you might want to think about this as a as an exercise i did it maybe i'll pass out the exercise that i did one of these days but to take all of the judgments list them and then put down time place judge object subject etc and all the other things about it and then look at that whole page and see if this can be one general judgment you have got to practice gross spiritualization in order to talk about one general judgment. And that's why in uh, books by uh, Weingarten and others, they make no bones about it. They say, we are leaving the principle of literal interpretation at this point. They have to if they're going to have a general judgment. And you have to if you're going to make Israel and the church one. So as you deal with this, I've got to think forth, think, think out, does the scripture teach imminency, that Christ may come at any moment? If that's true, there cannot be prophesied signs preceding it. Does the scripture teach a distinct nature of this tribulation? Is it a unique period of time, or is it like all other tribulation? Does the scripture teach something specific for Israel and something specific for the church? Uh, look at the text carefully. Uh, The time of the resurrection, I don't think I have anything to add to that under D, that it's uh, clear, the illustration that he gives from John chapter 5. And then in E, I have already related to that at length, uh, certain passages which fix a post-tribulational return, no doubt about it. And the clarification is seen, what is, the second advent of Christ to the earth to consummate his work of judgment, and what is the coming of Christ for his church to reward his people? Two entirely different subject matters. Uh, on 291, the historical precedence, I have spoken of that, and I have sought to share and as honestly as I can uh, what the problem was. I remember when I was teaching in another seminary, uh, one of the guys came out of a college that was uh, uh, strongly post-tribulation in its orientation and he came into my eschatology class bent that he was going to graduate uh, from that school and at that point you had to be a pre-tribulationalist to graduate and so he didn't want to have to make up his mind he thought that if he could come to the end of the class uh, without having make up made up his mind that they just kind of shove him through And so he tried as much as possible to read Time Magazine and whatever else in the class instead of uh, listen to what was going on. And I gave him an assignment because his big argument was this very one right here, the historicity of the position. And I said, look, let's not take everybody else's word for it. Go back and look at it. And he went back to look and did extensive research. His baby thesis was on this particular subject, what did the early church believe? And he today is a staunch pre-tribulationalist. Uh, don't be afraid of the problems. Go back and look at them. And uh, we are not claiming infallibility for interpretation, but we are saying don't make a decision on the basis of apocapated information. Uh, go back and get the whole of what is there. Now, uh, 291, the mid-trib rapture position. I'm just going to uh, make a short statement on this in a couple of minutes because uh, much of what you have here I've already talked about under the preceding position. Uh, for example, uh, I, should, I should name a couple of people here uh, that hold to this view. Uh, James O. Buswell, Jr. would be one. Uh, that's not the third that's living today. This one is with the Lord, James O. Buswell, Jr. Uh, Norman B. Harrison, a fine a Bible teacher of a generation ago, and then I mentioned to you earlier Gleason Archer. Uh, they would believe that the church will be translated in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel. Please understand that these people would not call themselves mid-tribulationalists. Some would actually call themselves pre tribulationists What they are thinking of is pre-great-tribulation. Some really are more post-tribulationalists. They're after the tribulation and before the wrath. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a mediating viewpoint. They would not describe themselves as mid-tribulationalists. That's what other people use to describe them. Um, Gleason Archer is more on target when he says pre... Uh, or rather, uh, what did he say... <laughs> I can't. The mid seventieth week position, yes, the mid seventieth week rapture. Very technically, the position that I hold, and I would hope that all of you would hold, uh, is uh, really a a uh, not a a pre tribulational viewpoint, but a pre seventieth week viewpoint. Uh, if you're going to be specific, as they are being specific, in other words, the setting up of the man of sin the engaging of a covenant for the last seven years is a specific sign when that uh, when that covenant is made that'll have worldwide recognition in my mind the rapture takes place sometime before that Uh, let me not take a question now but just move on because i'm I'm not going to make it here Another thing that I would mention that is not in the notes here is that this viewpoint would see the elect as the church. And again, using the term elect as a technical term for church, I think, has exegetical and contextual weakness. Um, Now, look at their major supporting arguments. One, a denial of imminency. I think you can obviously see why that is true. You've already had several major prophesied events that have to take place before what they would call the mid-70th week or Revelation 11:15, 15, the coming of the Lord God Almighty, the strong term for Panto Croctor, a, a, a title of him coming in his judgment, coming in his wrath, been preceded by the setting up of the covenant by the, uh, the Antichrist. <coughs> The promise of tribulation for the church, again, there's nothing new there. That's the same kind of argument that you find in the post-tribulational one. Where you do have some uniquenesses here are in the next couple, and I've already related to one of them. Let me repeat it again. The tribulation period does not begin until the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11:15. 15. All that is recorded in the apocalypse prior to this is not wrath from God, not great tribulation. Now, some of them, like Norman Harrison, called the first three and a half weeks a period of sweet peace. I, I won't comment on that. I, I just uh, on- only read. Only read the description of the first three and a half years. Is it really sweet peace? Uh, because they recognize the church will not go through wrath, so they've got to put wrath someplace else. But the problem is, what do you do With the preceding statements in the seals, now has the day of his wrath come. What do you do with the statements in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 concerning the wrath of God? But I would say in their benefit that they do not believe that the church goes through the wrath of God. The point is, where is the wrath of God? Wrath of God right down at the end, or is the wrath of God through that period? Revelation six, Revelation seven, as well as Revelation eleven, etc. The the trumpet under number D, the seventh trumpet of Revelation eleven, fifteen, and the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15, 52, they say are identical. Again, do not simply use a concordant study of the Scripture. How many sermons are made that way where you find a word and you say, I'll find it where else that word is used? There are fifteen uses of the word, divide those fifteen into three points with five each, and I've got it. Uh, elect is not the same in every context. Jesus Christ is not you, though you're both elect. Uh, Trumpet is not the same trumpet every place. Uh, The seven trumpets in in Revelation are identified as such, and the last one is the last in that series. But indeed, it is not the last trumpet of all, for there is still a trumpet coming after that that Dr. Cook refers to here in the text you have in Matthew chapter 24 at the coming of the Son of Man. So, it is not indeed the last, but it's the last of that series. Uh, Careful exegesis at that point, I think, is needed. Uh, Spiritualization is rampant in many of the expositions of these passages. Well, I got as far as I could. Uh, I'll probably have to pick up a few more pieces from 293 and following, And I want you to particularly be aware of the last point on 294, E, the need for an interval between the rapture and his return to reign. I think most of what comes up before that I have discussed in one way or another, either directly or indirectly at this point. But I think what we haven't mentioned is that very last point on 294, if the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, then you've got two major problems. Here they are. Another separation would seem to be unnecessary, i.e., Matthew 24 uh, and 25, the end of 24 and 25. The, the, the judgment of uh, the Gentiles and the judgment of the Jews. Uh, there has already been a separation. There would no longer be a need for a separation. And secondly, there would be no living people left to populate the messianic form of the kingdom. And when God starts his reign on the earth, uh, his kingdom reign, there are people in uh, bodies that populate that kingdom. And you would not have people who procreate in that kingdom if everybody just prior to that time Uh, has been uh, uh, separated Uh, sheep from goats uh, uh, the wheat from the chaff uh, etc etc so I think these two statements made at the end are really uh, insuperable problems just from the logic of it totally apart from the other uh, exegetical problems that you have to face we'll look at that a bit next time but I would like next time to get into at least the beginning stages of uh, the third phase of our salvation namely glorification an area that altogether too little time is given to uh, we spend most of our time on justification and uh, a little on sanctification not nearly enough and almost nothing on glorification and uh, I think that uh, the motivation of the events at that juncture of our salvation are really meaningful for us today. So I want to spend as much time of the next two hours as possible on that. Thank you.